Please take a seat. It is wonderful to see you all. Some of us a bit more shaken up this morning than others maybe, and then we had the wind coming through as we came down uh, here as well. So good to see everyone and everyone online too. Trust you're all well and good. Um, And if our technology works, I'm going to start with something a little different uh, this morning. I wonder if you know any of these faces I'm about to show you or have heard of their names, and if you can work out what it is they all have in common. Steve Smith, he's got it on his bib there. Who's that one? Lance Armstrong. Do you know that one? Her name is Jane Seville. They're all great athletes, various sports, done amazing things, great achievements, but they've all got something else in common as well. At one point or another, for one reason or another, whether it was cheating, doping, false starting or incorrect technique, each and every one of those athletes at one point in their life have been disqualified. And therefore they were unable to receive any prize, any award, no recorded time or achievement. All they received was a big fat DQ in the box next to their name. And no athlete ever wants to see those letters in that box after their name. Yes, even the fastest man on earth, Usain Bolt, um, has been disqualified in the past. He false started back in 2011. Only months after the new rule of no second chance came in, he was about to run in the final at the uh, World Track and Field Champs and couldn't. He just gets a DQ next to his name. Couldn't strut his stuff. Jane Seville is probably one of the most well-known Australian athletes, sadly due to her last-minute disqualification at the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. She was 200 metres from the finish line after walking almost 20,000. It was a 20k walk, the race walk. On a home turf, about to enter the stadium, all she had to do was go up the finishing straight and she would have won gold. And a man showed her the red paddle, saying that her technique had been flawed more than three times. She already knew she was on two warnings. Third time, somewhere in the last kilometre, Just before she enters, she's disqualified. And you can see the devastation on her face, can't you? Apparently a reporter who was just outside the tunnel, she didn't know what to do. She couldn't go through the tunnel. Everyone would think she's there. She was just devastated. A reporter said, is there anything I can do? Can I get you something? And sadly, in a moment of pure emotion, she later admits it was just the the thing of the moment. She said, get me a gun so I can shoot myself. Just the emotion of the moment, but it was quite a telling report, isn't it? You really don't want to be disqualified. As crushing as that was for Jane Seville, have a spare a thought for this fella, Mexican man, Bernardo Segura, only hours earlier in the men's 20k walk. He had finished the race. He had won, he'd got gold, and he only learned that he was disqualified because the man who held up the red paddle wasn't in the best position to get to him before he got to the finish line. He only heard 15 minutes after he'd finished, after receiving a phone call trackside from the Mexican presidents congratulating him for the win. No athlete ever wants to see that red card or those letters DQ next to their name. There's one hurdler who was disqualified for a false start. It's devastated. 
curled up like a, like a baby in a ball and just cried and cried and cried. Sorry. No athlete ever wants to be disqualified and no Christian ever wants to, as we run our race, the race of faith, we never want to hear those words disqualified from God, do we? We don't want to get red carded because it's going to be far more than tears and four years of training down the drain. And that's why Paul, who often uses these athletic images, warns us in this passage from Colossians 2. It didn't come out clearly in the reading from, that Nathan had. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone condemn you in verse 16. And then verse 18, it's a different word, and it says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. You might not be an athlete, you might not be into athletics, you might not be very sporty at all. We had a, a lecturer at Bible College, he was a rather large fella, um, and he was happy to say that. He said there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, those who like doing sport and those who like watching sport. And he was very happy to admit that he was of the later category. Um, but whether you like running in races or like watching running races, or maybe the only kind of running you like is running a long hot bath, none of us want to be disqualified from Christ. And so we'd better listen to what Paul's got to say to us this morning, because that's his warning to us. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one stop you receiving the crown of righteousness. This is Jane Seville four years later at the next Olympics. She won bronze in Athens. Can you see the smile on her face? That day she made sure no one disqualified her thanks Jeff let no one condemn you let no one pass judgment on you and let no one disqualify you the word here for disqualify means don't let anyone rob you of the prize don't let anyone take the prize from you like an umpire deciding against you judging you ruling you out of the race But disqualified from what? What's Paul talking about? And how is it we could be disqualified and how is it we keep from being disqualified? Jane Seville had to make sure both her feet, one foot was on the ground the whole time and her legs were straight as hips come over. That's the rules for race walking. A few more technicalities to it. But given the context for us in Colossians these last few weeks, what is it we could be disqualified from? I can only imagine that Paul actually means don't let anyone disqualify you from Christ. Now I wrestle with that and I know many of you do too the whole notion of being able to be disqualified in the first place. Aren't we kept safe and secure in Christ by God himself? Didn't Jesus himself say no one can snatch us from the Father's hands? Are the gifts and calling of God irrevocable and effective? Are they binding or not? And yet Paul warns us here, don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. We hear similar warning passages in Hebrews. Don't fall away. At a minimum, Paul means, don't let anyone convince you or judge you as being out of the race, outside of the people of God. Don't let them even put a seed of doubt in your mind. If it's not our whole salvation that someone could rob us of... Maybe it's the joy of our salvation, the freedom we have in Christ, the assurance 
of our salvation. If someone plants seeds of doubt in our mind, when we do this or do that, that they don't approve of, as we'll speak about in a minute, don't let anyone rob us of the confidence we have in Christ, that sure hope of the treasure laid up for us in heaven, from which springs, remember, faith and love for the Colossians, that may not be as terrible as losing our whole salvation, but it would still be a terrible thing to happen. If we lose the assurance and that hope of what's laid up for us in heaven, according to Paul at the beginning of Colossians, we also lose the faith and the love that springs from that hope as we share together in life. This is really important. It's not just theoretical. It's practical. Paul's not just speaking about having a sense of losing something. That wasn't meant to link in with Nat's uh, children's talk. This is real. It was for the Colossians and it is for us today and it's vital we take notice of it because there are plenty of things around us and in our churches, on our screens, in our culture and in the media that will tempt us, that will lure us and that will condemn us and are at risk of disqualifying us from the good things of the gospel. In Galatians, Paul warns us, you are severed from Christ, you're cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. If you think you can make yourself good enough for God by doing all the right stuff, you're actually cutting yourself off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, when you hear about someone who's fallen from grace, what normally comes to mind? Usually, it's someone who's committed some grievous sin, some great public sin, a person in high regard possibly caught in adultery or caught cheating the books. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not speaking about cheating or having poor technique in the run, in the race you're running and being disqualified because of that. He's speaking about being disqualified by hankering after something else, something other than Jesus Christ and all that we've been given in him. He's talking about being disqualified for yearning for something and yielding to a temptation of an experience other than Christ. Whether that's for our righteousness outside of Christ, whether that's for our satisfaction, our pleasure and our fullness that we heard of last week apart from Christ, or whether we're looking for some great experience, mystical, spiritual, sensual experience other than our redemption and forgiveness. For Paul and the Colossians here, as we heard in the reading, it refers to questions of food and drink, festivals and special days. Are they allowed to celebrate them? Are they allowed to partake of eating and drinking certain foods? Or do they have to abstain? Or maybe even some people are saying you have to participate. You're being pressured into um, participating in certain rituals and religious discipline, as verses 20 to 23 suggest, because unless you do, you're not really part of the crowd. Unless you go through these motions and have this wonderful ecstatic experience, how do you really know you're one of God's special people? How do you really know you're saved? There's more to it than the cross of Christ is the lie behind these pressure and temptations that the Colossians are hearing and feeling. There were Jewish mystics in the day. It wasn't just outside of the church or outside of God's people. There were Jewish mystics as well as pagan ones who would encourage fasting and certain physical disciplines to prepare the worshipper for a certain kind of experience when they came to worship. And we'd never have that today, would we? 
I tell you, there's some places where that's exactly what happens every week. You have to go through certain motions, certain rituals, so that you experience something divine, something heavenly, something angelic. Just so you can say, I've had this vision, (laughs) I've had this wonderful experience, and all it does really is actually puff up our own egos. And there was tremendous pressure to have that experience. Or else how can you really know you're saved? But can you see how all those practices and the way Paul writes to them here and he makes it quite clear, all they do is take our attention away from Christ and put it onto ourselves. They only serve to puff up the ego of the worshipper without reason but by sensuous minds. It doesn't boost our assurance at all. All it does is boost my pride and my ego. It ends up being all about me, all about the worshipper rather than the one we are worshipping. The experience trumps faith. The experience trumps reason. The pleasure and the tantalising nature of it trumps the truth of the gospel that says you are saved in Jesus Christ. Believers, you are complete in Christ. And what Paul's talking about here is anything that questions that fullness that we have in Christ. It's all about the senses, the sensuous mind. It's not just talking about sexuality, just pleasures, eating, drinking, touching, pride, greed, acceptance. Anything that we would put in the category of being a lover of self rather than a lover of God is what is the danger that could disqualify us that Paul's talking about here. But it's really, really tantalising because we like things that feel good, don't we? We like things that look good. We like things that give us an experience. Today we could equate it to, if it feels good, do it. Because God's good, isn't he? And surely God wants us to feel good, so surely he wants me to go through this experience. So it must be of him, it must be from him. It must be what he wants for me to have that kind of experience, that ecstasy and that pleasure. Except, isn't that exactly what Eve thought back in the garden? The forbidden fruit was good to look at. It was good for food. It tasted good. It was attractive. And it was good for wisdom. So it must be good. It wasn't. It had the appearance of wisdom just as Paul says here. And so we can see where these kind of temptations and dangers actually come from, what their true source is. The evil one who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But that's not the only reason these things are so dangerous to us. It's not just the source of these ideas, it's the outcome, the consequences which makes them so dangerous. These things are dangerous because as they take hold of us, what actually happens is we lose hold of Christ. As they take hold of us, we lose hold of Christ. As we reach for that next experience, yearning for it, that better worship music, that spiritual high, whatever it is we're looking for, we actually lose our hold on Jesus Christ. We lose our footing and we so easily slip into a way of life and even of worship which is so far removed from the gospel and the grace of God. 
that we risk being disqualified because we're no longer holding fast to the head, which is Christ. And it's only in him the whole body, Paul tells us, is held together. And in him we're nourished and we're knit together through all its joints and ligaments. It's all of us together, every member, and it's in him that we grow with a growth that is from God. Never apart from Christ, never outside of Christ. No experience outside of Christ grows us up in faith and maturity. Now as preachers, John, Nat, Grant and I, preaching through Colossians, we've actually talked about this, we've had good times sharing together of what these pressures and temptations might be for us today. In the time of Colossians, it was the worship of angels, certain spiritual disciplines and certain days and food and drink... What is it that would be the same for us today? I've already mentioned a couple of things, different types of worship, things we hanker for, experiences. But if we try to put our finger on it and just say it's this or that, then that might not actually be the temptation or danger it is for you. So let me put it this way, following on from what Nat shared with us last week, that mind-boggling truth, as he called it, that in Christ... In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwelt bodily. The whole person carried in Jesus Christ. And we have been filled in him. Believers, you are complete in Jesus Christ. So with that image in mind, if you've got a glass or a bucket and it's full to the brim, you have been filled in him. And then you try to put something else in that container. What happens to what's already in the container? It spills out, doesn't it? It makes a mess. If I remember my days of Year 9 science, I think it's called the theory of displacement. And that's what Paul is warning us here. Don't displace Christ by trying to squeeze in or add to him any other experience outside of him outside of the gospel, outside of the grace of God. Whatever the issue is, whatever the something else, don't try to replace the substance of Christ with a shadow that can actually spill what you already have in him. You don't end up with more, you end up with less. Because the thing we try to put in is only a shadow. Christ is the substance and it won't last, but Christ does. Friends, you have been filled in him. Don't try to squeeze something more in. Don't try to add to your righteousness or your holiness or your salvation experience by trying to add more to Christ. You'll only end up squeezing him out and losing hold of him. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, that self-discipline, doing fasting and doing certain things with your body, and worship of angels, going on in detail about vision, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Friends, you have been rooted and built up and established firmly in Jesus Christ. So don't go reaching for more, for something else, and lose your footing. As I said, you know what happens to the race walker when one of their feet's not touching the ground? They get disqualified. Let no one disqualify you. Now for us it might not be certain religious days or the worship of angels that tempt us. 
It might not be hankering after some supernatural, divine experience, spiritual, mystic experience. Although there are places, there are churches where angel dust is said to have fallen from the rafters. And ecstatic experiences are had all the time. And if you haven't had one, well, maybe your faith is actually in question. It's not what the gospel says. But there's far less religious things that are dangerous as well, aren't there? What you eat, what you drink, what type of terrian are you these days? Are you vegan? Are you vegetarian? Do you celebrate Christmas, Valentine's Day, Lent? Are we allowed to? On their own, most of those things are actually pretty neutral. They pose little, if any, threat. But if we add to them any sense of righteousness, if we think we are better off and closer to God because we do this or that, or we think someone who doesn't do this or that is not as close to God, then they're really dangerous things. They're not neutral anymore. If we think they make us more part of the Christian crowd and others less part of the Christian crowd, then we are judging and condemning and disqualifying others. And we're in danger of chasing shadows and losing the substance of Christ. Back in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul said, Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Receiving Christ means we are to walk a different way. We have a different way of life to how we lived before we received Christ. Back in verse 12, he speaks of us having been buried with Christ and also being raised with Christ. And then this morning in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Paul is surprised. He's concerned that the Colossians are living in a way which they should have left behind. They're living in the graveyard of their own life, their old life. I used to go to school that had a cemetery just next door, over the back wall from our classroom. Never felt all that comfortable as a kid, being that close to a cemetery. Paul's worried that these Colossian believers are living, not just have it next door, they're living in the graveyard of their old life. They've been buried with Christ. They died with him in their baptism. But they're still living like that. They're like zombies, dead but alive in the graveyard of their sin, of their own self-righteousness, apart from Christ, back in the kingdom of darkness, back in the ways of the law to try to get right with God, with the danger of losing hold completely of Christ. Being raised with Christ and receiving Christ means we walk a different walk than that. And it means we think different thoughts as we'll see next week's next week our lives are not found in the world but in Christ let your minds be set on the things above where Christ is that's where our life is now hid Nathan drew our attention to the therefore at the beginning of verse 16 if you read most of Paul's letters there's lots of therefores and ifs and sinces it's all linked together and the therefore, and I love the way Nathan did it, just using Nat's uh, phrase from last week, ties all of this together. Because of what God has done in Christ, 
because you are full in him, because of everything he's done in you through Christ, forgiven and filled and everything else we've been hearing, because of all of that, we're to walk in a different way. We're to talk a different talk. And before Paul describes what that walk does look like, John will tell us more about that next week, he tells us today what it doesn't look like. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you and don't let anyone deceive you. We are allowed to remember and celebrate certain special days and we can choose to eat and drink or we can choose not to. Don't let anyone condemn you for that and don't condemn anyone else for it. Elsewhere in scripture we're taught taught how to go about that in love for one another. But either way, whether we eat or drink, celebrate or not, those things are not our path to salvation. They're not how we earn God's favour or remain in his favour. They're not how we fill ourselves more up in the gospel. They're only a shadow. Jesus is the substance of our salvation, of our faith, of our freedom and our fullness. So don't let anyone condemn you Don't let anyone judge you as being out of the race when it comes to shadows. Because the substance has been revealed in Jesus Christ and you have been filled in him. Secondly, don't let anyone disqualify you. We've already talked about what that means. And thirdly, don't be deceived. It's not a word Paul uses directly, but he talks about things which appear to be wise the appearance of wisdom, the appearance of promoting self-made religion and asceticism, but they're of no value. They cannot stop the indulgences of the flesh. Don't be fooled into thinking doing this plus this plus this and you'll fix up your bad habits and your sinful life. Only a love for Christ, only a heart filled with a love for Christ will have any effect in restraining the indulgences of the flesh. Only when our affections are fixated and full in him will we not have affection for things outside of him. There's a good chance Paul's actually speaking here, the things which have an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion is actually the preparation of a certain kind um, for a mystical experience. But the greatest danger, as I've said earlier, in these things is not just the action themselves, not the experiences, but the fact that they stop us, they cause us to lose hold of Christ. And that is what Paul is so keen for us not to do. For the Colossians, that's what I'm so keen for us not to do here at Coro. Don't lose hold of Christ. Because if you do, your salvation's in jeopardy. Not only that, the whole body suffers. Did you pick that up when you read it? Christ alone is where the head of the body, from whom the whole body, that's the whole church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If we don't hold fast to Christ, the whole body suffers. All of us together. Have you ever tried leaving the house, or maybe coming out of the shopping centre into the car, and you've got a whole armload of stuff, precariously balanced, every finger holding a bag or hooked around something and then you've got to get your keys and you're trying to hold it all and you get your keys and you try to get to the door and you drop something and try to catch that, everything just comes out tumbling away. 
It's quite comical to watch someone going through that, isn't it? Should probably stop and help. But this is not a comedy that Paul's warning us of here. Have you got Christ in your arms? As in, are you holding fast to him with both hands? Determined not to let go and not to let anything distract you and stop you from holding fast to him. Or are we holding on to Christ with one hand and reaching for something else in the other? And the more we reach, the more we're actually going to let go and lose our hold on him. Don't do it. Friends, you've been filled in him and in him the whole fullness of deity of God dwells bodily. Remember the glass, full container? Try to put something else in, what happens? You lose what you've got. Don't displace Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And don't be deceived into thinking that you're not filled in him. Because if we let ourselves be taken to any such thought, if we try to add to the abundant grace of God that he's already filled us with and lavished upon us, it won't increase our joy or our blessing. We'll actually end up with less because we'll be hungering for something which is only a shadow and can never fulfil. Whereas Christ is eternal and he's the substance. I've said it before here. How does the psalm go? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. He is enough for me. That is enough for me. I don't need anything else. The Lord is my joy and my salvation. Is that what's true for you? Can you sing that psalm? I think you can. And yet there's still a battle, isn't there? There's still the temptation. There's still the attractive, enticing things around us. The experience we need, any experience we need, what we heard is actually what we heard last week. We've been filled in him. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Have you experienced that? Do you know your redemption in Christ? Do you know all your sins are forgiven? That's the experience I want you to have in Jesus Christ. That's the experience we need to know. That all our sins have been forgiven. That the, dis, the rulers have been disarmed. Any record of debt against us has been cancelled. If we try to add to that, we ain't going to end up doubting all the foundational stuff. If you do know that, then you've had all the experience, if I can put it that way, that you need. Because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And if you say that and you believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's enough. If you haven't had that experience, if you don't know the forgiveness of your sins, then please come and speak with me or Nat or one of the elders afterwards. We'd love to share with you more about Christ and love you to receive just an armload, a bootload of God's grace and his goodness in Christ. Don't let anything let you lose hold of Christ. Hold fast to him as he holds fast to us. Now that won't mean we won't ever be tempted to sin, that we won't ever sin again. 
Lord knows there's enough anger and selfishness and greed and lust in my own heart from ever thinking I'll never sin again. But those things are no longer my natural bent. See, my life is hid in Christ. Those things I no longer delight in. Even the sin that seems pleasurable. We've got apples on the tree at the moment. If you bite into a really nice looking apple and then you find out it's got codling moth on the inside, you just sort of spit it out and it just tastes foul. That's what anything outside of Christ, that's what sin does to us. It might look pleasurable, it might look good, but you take one taste and afterwards, oh. And where do you run? Where do you turn? Back to Christ, back to the promise of the gospel, the fullness of Christ, forgiveness. Nothing else has any value or power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. How do we go on in that? Resisting sin and temptation. How do we recognise the good, the bad and the ugly in this world and in our own hearts? John's going to open up a bit more of that next week in a more positive and proactive sense. What we've heard this morning, as I said, is the more don't do this, don't let this happen. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And don't be deceived. Instead, hold fast to Christ, who is your head. And if or when you feel your grip on Christ is slipping, maybe you're holding on to too much extra, maybe you're looking for something more, or maybe you're just weary in life and faith in the battle, and you feel yourself slipping. And if that's you, then I want you to hear the words of this next song we're about to sing. Sing them with us. He will hold me fast. As our musos come up, take these words in. Whatever little bit of faith you feel like you've got left that you're just clinging on to, it only needs to be the size of a mustard seed. And you know what? Even that is God's gift to us, that tiny bit of faith that we can cling to. Because it's not the faith we cling to. That little bit of faith is actually trusting the one who is Lord of all, is clinging to us. He holds fast to us and none can snatch us out of his hand. So the battles may wage on, they will, and they'll be fierce at times. And the wind and waves of life and sin and evil, and even the psalmist tells us sometimes it's the waves of the Lord, his breakers wash over us. But how does the psalmist finish? (laughs) Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. When we wobble and wander in our faith, what really keeps us each day is the one who holds all things together. He holds us, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the one in whom we have been filled to the brim. Hold fast to him, because he really will hold you fast as well as we come to him in faith.